Hey y'all, this is Rich Collins of Renaissance Publishing. Welcome to Mardi Gras Beyond the Beads, a series of conversations with Mardi Gras historian Errol Laborde about the history and traditions of Carnival, the greatest free show on earth. This season of Mardi Gras Beyond the Beads is brought to you by Crispy Crunchy Chicken. One of the best things about Mardi Gras is the food. And when you're craving crispy crunchy chicken with the Cajun flair, there's only one solution, crispy crunchy chicken. Look for it in select convenience stores all over town. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Beyond the Beads. Today's guest is Sharice Harrison Nelson, also known as Queen Reese, who has been queen of the Guardians of the Flame Maroon Society in New Orleans for the past 30 years. Queen Reese, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. Appreciate you sharing your time and your knowledge. So first off, for our listeners who might be all around the world, can you explain what the Guardians of the Flame Maroon Society is, how it's similar and dissimilar to the Mardi Gras Indian tradition? Well, um, our, we like to say that our group uh, is, we try to practice cultural expressions that are the empirical evidence that people of African descent remembered who and whose they were, that they are the children of West Africa and Africa. So a lot of our imagery on our suits is based on African um, cultural expressions. We have African drummers. We actually have a, a Papatito Sampa from the Congo is our mentor and our spiritual leader and our uh, cultural guide. So. Now, a lot of people get confused and they think, oh, Guardians of the Flame, that's Mardi Gras Indians. Can you explain the difference? Well, we started out called, you know, my father started in the Indian, what's called the Mardi Gras Indian tradition. And the tradition is basically people of African descent who dress in original art that features beadwork, designs, and featherwork. What, what we dip, how we differ is many of those people, and I'm not speaking for everyone, but the most common narrative is that when people of African descent self-emancipated themselves during the colonial period, that some of the Native American indigenous people, Choctaw, we have to refer to people the way they want to re be referred to. So no one's here. So I'm trying to use a collective um, noun. But when they self-emancipated themselves, some were assimilated into the Native American groups in the region, but not all of them. Some lived separate and independent in groups along the bayous, the perimeters of the uh, plantations and called the borderlands. And they lived this free and separate life. They self-emancipated. And if you take the sentence, I personally don't use the word slave, but because no one's born a slave, they're born a human being who is enslaved. But if you take the most common narrative that you hear, which is when the slaves ran away and you put a period right there, that is the definition of a maroon. So we're calling it what it is for us. And for us, it embodies more than just the name, it embodies a way of life. The, to be free of all the things that try to enslave us or bind us to ideals, principles, practices that may not align with our core values. I'm a very ample sized woman, so I can't allow the images that appear in glamour and vogue tether me to that image of beauty. 
you know, now we follow traffic <laughs> rules and regulations and all of those things. I don't want to say like we're this, this group doing our own thing, but it's it's more of a um, intellectual uh, existing of being free. All right. Well, so well that's fascinating. First of all, and it's and it's really interesting to hear you. So it's not just this is beyond a carnival tradition, and it's it's a, a philosophy and approach to life. Yes, it is, and I am a narrative artist. So everything I do, it tells a story. Every little thing that I put on my suit, and we call them suits and not costumes, means something. Last year, our theme was uh, always in our hearts. And it was an homage to our collective ancestors of the group. So every person that participated honored the ancestors that were important to them because you want to make it personal, but at the long same time, you want to make it so that it relates to people, not just you. You don't want, I never want people to look at me first with feathers and beads. I want them to look at me as a human being that we share some of the same emotions, feelings, sorrows, joys as a human being. But I happen to sometimes cloak myself in beads that tell a story. We have several things that we do. We have a play a theatrical production that has, uh, I think it has 21 cast members with the brass band. Without the brass band, it has 13. Wow. Ranging in age from three to 71, I think. And so that you do that every year, the same production? Well, the production varies because we it's very topical. There's a constant in it, but then it's very topical because every person is telling their story. So your story for this year may not be your story. Your story today may not be your story in three months because we're all evolving. Things are happening, coming into our lives. How do you process that through your art? How do you process that through the music? How do you process that through the dance? It's the process and the sharing. So we don't say that we perform. We give presentations. And I really don't perform anymore to, to just go, you know, it's very extracted to take the tradition and put it on the stage, you sing, you dance, but people have no context for that. Uh, is that performance open to the public or is that a private event? Uh, it depends. Well, normally we do it when people pay us to perform, <laughs> I mean, to present. You know, people will want to know more about the tradition and a lot of times they'll come to us when they want to, we do a lot of college work That's all, and um, conventions. We did something for the ACLU and it was very, very, um, it was one of the best uh, performances of productions we've ever done. We got a standing ovation, an extended standing ovation. Was that in New Orleans or did you travel? No, we went. To, we did it in New Orleans, but we traveled. We, since our inception, we've traveled all over the world to Asia, France, West Africa. Not too much into the Asia thing anymore because 27 hours of traveling. I'm <laughs> For sure. Now, I'm curious what is this tradition meant to you throughout your life and how, how has it evolved over time when you were a little child up until now as you're you know carrying on these traditions? Well, I always tell people my earliest memory, visual memories, uh, was I guess I may have been three or four years old and I saw my father with his suit and I remember just looking up and being in awe. <laughs> he, I didn't really know what it was, but I remember this he looks so beautiful to me and he looked like 
a majestic warrior. I saw all these feathers, the rhinestones with the sunburst. It was so beautiful. I was just a little girl and I really didn't have a context for it. But my mother told me a story that I often repeat because it just warms my heart. My daddy had two members of his group and they would always tell me, I changed your diaper when you were a baby. They didn't care who I was around. They would embarrass me. And I thought about, it, thought about my mother. And so I said, I don't think my mom will let them change my diapers. And my mother said, no, I didn't let them change the diaper, but I'll tell you what they did do. You know, the circle is very important in a lot of traditional cultures. My father and his group would sit in a circle and she said they would sing the songs on Sunday. Sunday is what they call practice. And they would sing the songs in a circle and kind of hype themselves up for Carnival Day. And she said, I had a big bald head and they would pass me from <laughs> lap to lap and each one of them would hold me up. It was like a game and they would sing to me and then they would, afterwards they would rub my bald head. It was like some kind of ritual and pass me to the next person. That so I, that really won't, so I say that to say somehow it was, I was, um, uh, pro, not program, what's the word? I can't think of it. I'm indoctrinated, right? Imprinted, you know, imprinted even to do this before I was born, but I didn't, so I, I didn't do it when I was a child and I went to high school. And of course our house was decorated with big pictures of my father and I was very embarrassed. I didn't understand it. I still didn't really understand it, understand it. And it wasn't until I was in college and one of my professors talked about it that I really appreciated my family's participation in this tradition. And then after that, it was just, I fell in love with it and I just wanted to be a part of it. My son was the first member, you know, to be a part of it. My daddy stopped dressing for 20 years. And I always tell people, there's no doubt about it. My daddy loved this tradition. But the one thing I know is my father loved his family more. He stopped for 20 years so that we would be able to go to school, get an education, because he said, this tradition is not a halfway house. Either you're in or you're out. And if you're in, Three things you have to be willing to um, sacrifice, your money, your time, and there's another one. I can't think of the third one, but it's your money and your time. And he wasn't willing to sacrifice that for his family, for the tradition. So he didn't do it for 20 years. And when he came back, he organized the group Guardians of the Flame. And the, everything in our group is narrative. So Guardians of the Flame, actually means that we are the guardians in the tradition and the culture, the flame, and we guard the flame and pass it on. That's why we always have children in our group. That's probably the long answer. That's a great answer. And I, I love the image of you as a little baby being passed around and sung to. Um, this is actually a good moment. Can you explain uh, a little bit about your father, uh, who, who he was, and then just just your, your musical family in general? It's, it's, quite, it's quite a collection of uh, artists. Well, uh, my father was a very, very inte intelligent man. One of the things, and I just told this story today. I remember when I was working on my master's degree, we had to study all of these philosophers and my daddy was very involved even as a graduate student in my education. So he wanted to talk to me about, you know, what philosophers are you going over? What are they teaching you? And he told me, oh, they're not teaching you that? Well, you need to learn about that. And I was like, okay, daddy. It's the end. I'm taking my comps. I'm only learning what I need to know for the test. We can talk about this afterwards. <laughs> it, was towards, <laughs> it was towards the end of his life and his vision was compromised. But my father made a chart 
on legal paper, he divided the chart and he did, uh, he listed each philosopher and that we, that was on the list. And he made a little statement about each one. It was, he condensed two years of academic study to one page. <laughs> I'm not, I'm telling you. And when I got to the session for my comps and, you know, first thing you do is you read all the questions to figure out where you're going to spend the most time. I was like, oh my God, I know all of this. I'm answering this one first. I know I got all of that. So I answered that one first. And my father was so proud of me when I did um, earn my degree, but he read a, for over 40 books a year. He was an avid library goer and, um, to his memory, my mother started the Big Chief Down Harrison Senior Book Club. And through that club, she has given away over 40,000 new books to area school children. And, you know, we made her stop counting at 40,000. We told her that was a benchmark number. And we weren't, weren't going to do 40,185. We weren't doing that. <laughs> but as a, little, <laughs> as a little girl, one of my fondest memories of my father, my father was a, a jazz enthusiast. He loved jazz um, and he went through periods. He may have done, you know, listened to Miles Davis extensively. Then he may have listened to Billie Holiday extensively, Stan Getz. But when we were children, it's four of us that we're close together in age. And, you know, four, you know, two, three, four, five, he would put us on the sofa with him while he listened to his jazz music while my mother went to have a break or go to the grocery or whatever. You could never, I don't think you could ever do this with children now unless you locked them away and didn't let, let them have access to technology. <laughs> but he would play his jazz, like he would play a whole side of Miles Davis. And then he would put on Dizzy Gillespie's Salt Peanuts. And we would sing the song, Salt Peanuts, Salt Peanuts. And he would tell us, okay, now just keep listening and your song is gonna come on. So he found a way for us to sit down and listen to the whole side of an album. And then he would put Dizzy Gillespie on for us to sing Salt Penis. And we did that. And I still remember that as a child. And uh, it's uh, one of my fondest memories. And when Donald, my brother, who's a phenomenal artist, would come into the schools, I asked him to play that for our students. And children all over the city for a period knew Dizzy Gillespie's Salt Penis from him sharing that song with them because my father shared that song with us as a way to keep us quiet and still and under his direction, we weren't running around the house. We were sitting on the sofa, waiting for salt peanuts to come on. Well, um, I love that he would that he would <laughs> he would like hold it out like the carrot on a stick. You have to wait for that. Right, song. right. All these other ones first. Right, right. So you know, but all of it's in you. You know, you can't put some junk in, junk out. Good stuff in, good stuff out. So it's all in us. Well, he he sounds like he's an incredible dad. He was, you know, he wasn't, I'm not putting him up to be a perfect man or a saint or anything, because he wouldn't want me to do that. But he was a good father, and he was the very best father that he knew how to be. And we had our differences of opinion. But for the most part, I attribute this tradition for us growing, me growing even closer to my father, because I was his queen. And I had lots of opportunities to be in the car with him when we were going to purchase stuff for the suits or going to a practice, going to a presentation. And it was during those times that he shared a lot about himself, about life, about the tradition. And it was during those times that he gave me a lot of wisdom. And I won't say it's advice, wisdom about myself and about how to navigate this world. 
That sounds great. You guys having that time together and having that shared interest and pursuit. That's wonderful. It wasn't always, you know, sometimes I rolled my eyes because if, <laughs> I don't know if you remember when uh, WWOZ had a Sunday evening afternoon jazz show sitting in with Clint. It was from two to four on Sundays. That was often the time we were in the car together going to the practice. And my daddy would say things like, that's Miles Davis, 1959. And so-and-so was on uh, bass, so-and-so was on piano, except for this cut. So-and-so was on that cut. And then he would go so far as to say, the album cover uh, was a drawing and you know, then later they began to get into pictures. I didn't really, I heard all of that, but I didn't really listen to that because I was going like, who cares? That's like <laughs> too much information, that's, but that was his brain. That's so interesting. What an interesting like snapshot into how he thinks. This season of Mardi Gras Beyond the Beads is brought to you by Crispy Crunchy Chicken. Celebrate flavor this Mardi Gras when you pick up some crispy, crunchy chicken at select convenience stores. We think it's the best fried chicken in town, and you'll love that little kiss of Cajun flavor in every bite. Um, well, let me, let me ask you, could you just talk about what, what your obligation and involvement in this project means to you, say, on an average calendar year. Like, how much time you spend on this versus your, your other life and other pursuits? How's it go? Well... I have a, a what I call I have a lot of um, crossover. There are blurry lines in my life, okay. so it's very hard for me to say this, that, or that. I, you know, my um, training is is a is as an educator, elementary level children and uh, gifted and talented, and talented in the arts. So there's a lot of bleed. I have children I work with, so I'm teaching them the arts. Uh, my mother has a nonprofit, so uh, if you could see my living room now, it's full of books. We have a program on Sunday for my dad's uh, birthday party. Every year we give him a birthday party. He would have been 90 this year. Mm. So I have 300 books over there that I'm going to get ready to give to the children, and the children in our group, get they get to give books to their peers, their classmates. I'm working on my suit. I have a commission, so there's a lot of blurry line so I have to actually carve out time for myself and this was the first year I did it and I never went on a cruise before but I went on a cruise because I, I know that was probably the only way I could really disconnect from technology and I figured life out you know you figure life out when you're sewing um you often you sew in the still of the night not so much that I'm older now and I don't have a regular job to go through to I can sew whenever I want basically. So, but you figure life out because it's very meditative. And I, you know, depending on what I have to do, I listen to different music. If I want to like get myself going, I listen to James Brown. Okay. And, uh, and I always start with looking at a video of him dancing and that just like hypes me up and I listen to him. <laughs> <That's> awesome. <laughs> I loved it. He was like so phenomenal as a dancer. And then if I want to um, remember my dad, I'll listen to some jazz and that'll kind of get my brain going. If I want to invoke my grandmother, I'll listen to like Mahalia Jackson. And that'll kind of put me in a different space. Um, so it just depends. All of that means something to me. And I really believe that the ancestors will speak to you if you're quiet and you open yourself up to what they're saying and you listen. I've tried to feel, I was working on a commission for the, uh, Arts Council. I made a suit 
that lit up. I was really out of my comfort zone, but I did it. And it was one part I couldn't figure out. I put it over the end of the sofa and I kept passing. I said, how am I going to do this? And I had to take the whole thing down. And one night, I, as I was walking past it, I just like heard it. And it was my father's voice. Well, you know, you could just snip the, uh, in the seam and stick the wire through there. And I was like, oh my God. <laughs> You're like, thank, thank you. Thank you, thank exactly. You. Wait, so when you tell me all that different music, that's that's like your sewing music? Is that what you mean when you have to get to work? Yeah, it's my sewing. It's, I listen to it when I'm doing other things too, but yeah, it's like my sewing music. It's like my head wraps. My head wraps mean different things. If I wear, I, I always tell people I kind of curate my appearance. So if I have on a red head wrap, I'm trying, I'm really invoking my father. I need to be strong. You know, I need to stand up for myself on dealing with these folks. <laughs> or just simply that he liked red. I wear blue, I try to invoke my mother because she likes blue. But I always tell people it's like 50 shades of blue. You don't know. It depends upon which one is actually going to show up, uh, which one I need. I need the gentle one. I need the uh, one that will defend something or whatever. And then when I wear purple, it's to remind myself that I am a queen and to walk in the space of being a queen. That's awesome. Uh, let me ask you, so how many hours, how, how, how do you quantify the amount of time you spend each year making that suit? You cannot. There's <laughs> no way you can do it because it's cumulative. If I'm working on something, but I remember something I learned when I was a student in West Africa, how can I, you know what I'm saying? Because I didn't know I was working on it when I learned that in West Africa, but it's part of who I am. And I learned that in 1993 or 94, but it's still being presented through this tradition. Understood. It's just a lifetime. Say it again. It's basically a lifetime is what goes into Yes, you. it is. It's very, like I said, you it's cumulative. You're always accumulating new knowledge, new experiences, and it's how you express that. When I started, like for instance, in our theatrical production, uh, one scene is where my father's making his transition to ancestor. That's something that is sort of, you know, I couldn't do that before he, he became an ancestor. We went on the genealogy road show and I learned about my great, great grandfather. Right. So we had a story in about my great, great grandfather and that is presented. So you understand what I'm saying is yes. you learn new things, new information, you kind of incorporate it into what you're doing. Yes, ma'am. I talk a lot. I'm, I always tell people, I said this at the beginning of our play. Now, I want you to know, I'm a former second grade teacher, so I will be checking for comprehension. And I will probably over-explain everything I'm talking about. <laughs> uh, I think I think I would pass my comps because you, you're doing a great job and really interesting, uh, a lot of great stories. Uh, in fact, uh, to that end, I've, I've, just, I've got two more questions for you. Uh, okay. You, but you can stretch these out as long as you like. One is... Um, I, I've heard about your work to keep the traditions alive during the pandemic when everything was shut down. Can you talk a little bit about what you did during the pandemic just to, 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 to keep the flame burning? And then what does it mean for you to be a culture bearer in general? And what's your hope for the future generations? Well, I'm going to take the second question first. Um, Barbara Lason Keller, who was my mentor and my friend, became an ancestor last week. It's shocking to all of us. But she always said, we have to begin, again, being a maroon, 
we have to begin to break the ground and talk about what we do differently. And she said, we are custodians of the culture, custodians of our history. And so I consider myself a custodian of our culture and our history, which makes me a guardian again. And so it is my job to guard it through my practice, through my works, and pass it on to the next generation. Make sure I keep it, I don't do anything to diminish its importance in our lives. I consider people who engage in cultural expressions based on African ways and from the Af African-American communities to be cultural first responders. When everything in your world seems like it's just full of despair. If you're from New Orleans and you hear da 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 and the tuba playing, immediately for that nanosecond, you're gonna perk up, gonna get a little adrenaline rush. So for me, we are cultural first responders and we are spiritual upset cultural, spiritual first responders. And I consider myself a custodian again. That's the long Great imagery. Uh, I love the idea of the first responder and culture and the arts coming in to, to lift people up when, when times are tough. Yeah, if you notice, you know, African-American, well, they're distinct funerary rites, but if you, when a uh, person in this tradition comes out of the church or the funeral home, they'll often make a circle with the suits on and they sing and you never see people crying in a circle. No matter how sad they are, how despondent and hurt, how much sorrow they're bathing in at that time. Something about those traditions lifts you up. So what was your other question? That's a great <laughs> well, that, that's a great answer. And no, that just more, more just practical question was that, you know, can you talk a little bit about what you were doing, you know, during the pandemic years? Uh, I know you were, what, were you doing some kind of virtual events and things just to kind of keep, keep the flame burning? Well, I did a lot of virtual events um, because people came to me to do virtual events because I couldn't travel. I was like a downer. <laughs> I wanted to go to San Francisco. But anyway, <laughs> I really, I wanted to go to Trinidad. <laughs> <laughs> so some of my work was virtual, you know, doing presentations and my other work, um, and I'm not saying anything I'm about to say to be controversial. I'm very open about my depression. I feel like we need to, pull the covers off depression and talk about it. And at the onset of the pandemic, I was very depressed. I was caring for my dad's best friend. I had been his primary caregiver for 15 years. Mm. I couldn't go to see him. Um, and this is why, you know, this tradition is so deep. He had already made his funeral arrangements. And on the day, um, he passed away on April 16th, but you know, the pandemic started on March 16th. And I, the last time I saw him was the Sunday before that. And, you know, I would go to see him and he enjoyed his dinner. I fed him his dinner and he really, really enjoyed it. It was a soul food dinner. It really, and soul, like really your soul, soul. It was uh, candy yams, mm -hmm. greens, chicken and cornbread. And he enjoyed it so much. That sounds good. And uh, when I left, he would always tell me the last thing he would tell me is, I love you, baby. 
and I would call him every day at one o'clock and five o'clock. I just took the alarms off my phone. I couldn't take them off for the longest. So at one o'clock, I call him and five o'clock. And after I hadn't seen him for three or four days, um, he, you know, well, maybe a week, I told him what was happening. I said, well, Joe, he said, when are you coming to see me? I said, Joe, I really can't come to see you, chief, because I, there's a disease out here. A pan, it's We having a pandemic and you can die. They don't know where it's coming from. I wouldn't want to bring anything to you. And after that, he never spoke again. When I told him that, he told me, I really need to see you. And he would always tell me, I need to see you. He never spoke again and he passed away. But when he was passing away, I became so, I don't, just, I couldn't be there. So that was really weighing on me and I wanted to be there. And then I remembered his funeral arrangements he made. And he said he wanted Chief Delco to sing our sacred song. And he said, and let Brian take it out like a youngster. And Delco is an older chief. I couldn't get Delco. So I called Chief Kevin Goodman. And we sang the sacred song uh, all of us in the room together to him as he was making his transition. And then he wanted Brian to sing Shallow Water, which was my daddy's signature song. And I don't think I told Brian I wanted him to sing that song specifically, but Brian sang Two-Way Pocky-Way. And the elders tell us that in our group, my circle, that that song means you go your way and I go my way. And it was so apropos and appropriate that he sang that because he literally passed away right after that. Mm. And he was going his way. I, I was so moved by it. I actually wrote an essay about it because it just uh, meant so much to me to be able to process that and look at the bigger picture and the spiritual aspects of that and try to find a space for me to be okay with my chief because he was my first chief. My daddy's friend, I used to call him my inheritance. I said, my daddy didn't leave me a million dollars, but he left you to me, but I'm going to take care of you. <laughs> <laughs> he loved when I told him that. <laughs> well, Cerise, so, uh, during our conversation, you've mentioned several wonderful people that you've lost. I just want to say, I'm sorry to hear about all these people that aren't with you anymore. They all sound like really great people that you got to be with and have in your life. Thank you. And it, it is sad, but you have to, you know, perspective and context is everything and i'm glad they came into my lives my life yes ma'am i guess it's a, that's one thing i'm learning as i get older too that you know we're all here for a limited amount of time and and it's a right it's a blessing for the people you get to be here with my daddy used to say no one gets out alive <laughs> that's true <laughs> all right my, my last question actually the, the zoom is going to cut us off so my my last question uh just is you know as you look at new orleans and all of our beauty and all of our challenges and, and then your works particularly what what's your hope for the future how do you see this going my hope for the future is really in children i think we have a moral responsibility to children we all do and especially children in new orleans of african descent who come from homes that are economically challenged we can't forget about those children because we're human beings you have to want for other people's children what you want for the children that share DNA with you. Right. And if you don't, it's simply immoral. We can't just want folks around to be busboys and dishwashers and the things that make life enjoyable for us collectively and 
not want something better for them. Any job you get, uh, and I tell this to people we work with, it's never about the gig you're on. It's about doing a good job on the gig you're on because you need to, to get some more in the future. And we need to invest more in children. And the reading program that my mother has is one way we can do it because we go in with a cultural uh, program and I always say misery is suspended during that period. If we can make children happy, read from a, an excerpt from a book, give it to them, and they go home and they want to read and engage in reading activities, I feel like I have done my part. I have done my part to bring joy to children in a way that's educational and that will bode well for us and them when they become good readers and contributing members of our society and they receive the 40 acres in a mule, metaphorically. Well, Sharice Harrison Nelson, it's really informative and inspiring to talk to you. Thank you for all your hard work to keep the traditions alive and for everything you do to make New Orleans a better place. Well, thank you. And it's been a joy talking to you. <laughs> this season of Mardi Gras Beyond the Beads is brought to you by Crispy Crunchy Chicken. Bring craveable Cajun flavor to the party this Mardi Gras when you pick up a box of crispy, crunchy chicken at select convenience stores. It's hot, juicy, and marinated with a blend of spices born here in Louisiana. You'll love every bite. 